Hello, and welcome to the Measure Up Podcast, a show dedicated to helping marketers and analytics professionals know what's working, what's not, and how to measure it all. I'm your host, Jim Genolio. Listen along as I talk to people just like you who are dealing with the marketing measurement challenges in today's world and learn best practices, tips, and actionable advice. All right, welcome to the Measure Up podcast. Today, we're going to explore the future of marketing measurement and how that affects marketers and analysts. And my guest today has unique insights into this topic. Rick O'Toole is the co-founder and CTO of Rockerbox, a marketing attribution platform. Welcome to the show, Rick. Hey, Jim. I really appreciate you having me on today. Um, Really excited to kind of dig into a lot of what Rockerbox has been working on and um, how we've been helping and, and working with marketers over uh, the changing ecosystem of the last four or five years. So um, I, I view this as like an awesome platform, uh, really excited to kind of reach your audience and uh, yeah, be able to share a lot of what we've been talking about um, with our customers and prospects at Rockerbox over the last few years um, and kind of, uh, yeah, be able to talk about this more broadly with with everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there has been like growing conversations around what's changing, right? Like we're all used to multi-touch attribution for the past 10 years and and everything that, you know, the Googles and the other you know, major platforms have been sort of pushing towards us. Um, so what, what, how have you seen the conversation developing over the past, you know, four or five years? I think that there's been a ton that's gone into this. So there's obviously um, regulation that has impacted the industry in a pretty major way. So um, there's been different periods of regulation and different types of regulation that I'd say have taken place. So um, there's kind of like governmental regulation that's impacted the industry. And that started um, initially in Europe with GDPR um, and essentially regulating how you could share and use data. Um, and then there was also industry regulation. So Apple kind of put regulations on App Store, how you could use data within the App Store. Um, and then in the US, uh, CCPA also kind of introduced a new form of regulation here in the US that also impacted and it seems like almost every week, week there's a new state introducing legislature or signing into law legislature or you know it's like it, the the sign is on the 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 sign in sign is on the wall what's the saying <laughs> the the writing is on the wall writing, yeah writing's on the wall <laughs> um yeah i mean you know the, the states are starting to kind of all kind of follow suit similar types of legislation similar to gdpr or ccpa um yeah, that's that's kind of the. I feel the same way. Like that's kicked it off, and maybe provided the right sort of um, sentiment among people for Apple to come in and say, "We are the saviors of privacy." Kind of taking that, whether you believe that they take it to heart or if it's just sort of their their marketing. Yeah, you know, like they've definitely gone full bore on that, right? And so you have ATT, ITP iOS 14.5, like all of these things that are taking what we've thought was, um, you know, thought that we had for the past 10 years, all this data at the user level, all their impressions that they viewed of our ads and clicked on and everything they've done on our websites and in our apps. And that's starting to kind of fall apart. Yeah. So I think um, you've kind of hit on like the two, the two sides of what's changed here. Um, regulation being kind of that first thing that spurred on a lot of this. And then technology being the second component of this that's stepped in with the ATT, ITP, which are essentially limitations on the technology themselves. So 
really Apple came in and kind of in 2001 started um, changing the way that data could actually be used on devices, um, in browsers, um, and, and changing the way that a lot of the industry has operated for, for quite a while. So I kind of view regulation um, as being kind of like, you know, the ground rules of essentially how businesses can structure their business, how you can use data, how you can use it and combine it with other pieces of data. Can you sell data? Can you not sell data? Can you use it for targeting? Um, and that's really what regulation was going after was saying like, hey, we want to we want to crack down on like how this information is being used. Um, but the technology actually stepped in and restricted what was capable. Um, and, and the big and most impactful change, I'd say, over um, over the last four years for the broader ecosystem has been the change to mobile, um, really with ATT stepping in and kind of removing the way that that identifier works. Um, I, I'm sure everyone that has an Apple device has clicked, you know, either yes or no to allowing to track. Um, Most of the, <laughs> the, the, the stats say it's something like, you know, less than 20% click yes. So um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of put put the death of that um, that identifier as something that folks have been using for targeting and for tracking. Um, but it really has moved us in, in a direction that I think is positive for the industry in general. Um, so I think for a period of time, there was a lot of this buying and selling of data or using it in a way that, you know, the end user and customer didn't necessarily have control over. And a lot of that has continued to change over time. Um, but I think the other thing that's important to note is really, um, both the technology and the regulation have really tried to be, um, targeted at a specific segment of how data gets used. Um, and this is really third-party relationships with data. So uh, if you think about an advertiser being kind of like the first party, you know, a customer comes to your website, um, they're going through the process of making a purchase. That's considered first-party information. Um, you know, the information that you're collecting along the way um, is kind of that relationship between the advertiser and the customer. And when it becomes a third party, it's exchanging that information with some other entity, um, like a Facebook or a Google or, or some other tool that you might be using. And really, both regulation and technology have tried to crack down on the exchange of information on that third party side. So it's saying like, after you've collected this information, who can you share it with? How can you share it? Um, and not necessarily trying to, there, there is some regulation around first party and GDPR is um, more restrictive in like where the data can be stored and other things, but really most of it has been trying to crack down on that relationship with third-party entities and the sharing of data across um, different places. Right, which is now kind of reintroduced these silos, right? You have the, the Facebook walled garden, the Google walled garden, and like what we've been sort of used to for a while now of being able to do this kind of cross-channel attribution is really kind of starting to, you know, become siloed again. And we have to have additional ways and methods to be able to to understand what's working and what's not across the channels, not just within the channels. Exactly. And I think like this is um, a, has been a big focus of Rockerbox. As soon as we kind of entered into this marketing measurement space, um, we've looked at it through the lens of first party data and how do we operate on behalf of an advertiser. Um, like our goal and our mission is basically to put the advertiser in control of understanding how they measure their marketing. Um, so everything has really been first party. It's not been about, you know, trying to join, uh, third party sources of data together to, to get good signals on this. It's really been, you know, using the information that a marketer can collect with their own, uh, pixel on site, with their own access to that user information with their e-commerce data. How do you construct, um, a data set that 
helps an advertiser analyze and understand that marketing. Right. So I'm, I'm curious. So in the early days of Rockerbox, was it more sort of multi-touch attribution focused or attribution focused? And then you guys have kind of made that shift over into, um, you know, we'll talk about in a second, like the marketing mix modeling and the MMM for Spotify that you guys have introduced. But have you kind of been just focusing as, as things have changed, kind of making that, that pivot there? So I think it's actually a, a combination of, of things. So I think like MTA dialing back 15 years ago um, was introduced as a way to do third-party attribution. It was, hey, we have this problem where someone believes that there's like this post-view event that someone served an ad on you know, the, the Yahoo homepage and a marketer or an advert, uh, Yahoo believes that they should get credit for that ad for, for a conversion event. And I think MTA really became more nuanced at, even before the point of uh, regulation and everything else that happened in that like what you're really trying to understand is a path to purchase. Um, and it's not necessarily this deterministic path to purchase that is necessary to understand how a user interacts with um, the marketing and ultimately interacts with your site and then uh, converts. So I think like MTA for us has always been this idea that there's this bottoms up data set that marketers are really after and being able to build that bottoms up data set for customers so that they can perform analyses on top of that. And it's really been heavily focused in on, you know, how, how do channels overlap with each other? How do they interplay with each other? Um, and how ultimately like in, in the scenario where you have information that um, indicates that there's overlap and interplay, how do you value the overlap and interplay between those channels? Um, so that's been really our focus for kind of that like first two and a half years in the attribution space was helping to understand that problem. And uh, it it's a fairly technical problem as well. So we've kind of like focused in on a lot of the technology for collecting that information, for being able to uh, organize it correctly and be able to tie it back to the spend that you have in an ad platform. And those are those have been significant challenges, but we've really started to look at the broader problem um, that marketers are having um, outside of just that bottoms up data set and the analyses that you can do on it. Right. Yeah. I, there's a lot of talk and I see a lot of posts on LinkedIn uh, in, in the recent months around and even years, really a couple of last 12, 18 months around, um, you know, maybe we don't just kill off multi-touch attribution, but we use it, you know, to, we use that along with marketing mix modeling along with incrementality testing to really kind of triangulate the the what's really happening right see where the where the methods agree where they disagree what we need to test into and, and not just necessarily like saying oh it's it's dead it's broken we can't use it but it's still providing possibly some signal um it's just making sure that we use that with that sort of mindset of like everything that we're doing is not the truth, right? They're all wrong to some degree or another, but how can yeah. we use them together to really kind of inform our decisions? Yeah. It's really, what is the role that this type of analysis plays in how you run your marketing? And I think that there was a time where folks believe that MTA was going to be the solution for all of your marketing decisions. So like you would be able to collect all of the data bottoms up deterministically and make a, you know, really informed decision around the state of the world. It was kind of the, um, for lack of better analogy, like the TSA or uh, whatever, like the information state, like, hey, we're going to collect all of this really granular information and it's going to create this 
perfect data set. And basically, um, that that's never really been the case with MTA. Um, it's it's been like uh, an ideal that I think has been out there. Um, but Rockerbox has never approached it through that idealistic lens. We've always looked at it as how do we do this in a way that um, kind of is a representative of the advertiser, um, his first party, and also incorporates probabilistic information into that path to purchase. So you're getting a good understanding of how do all of these components of marketing fit into a user path um, and help you perform kind of these analyses that you might want, uh, whether it's optimization or overlap or uh, or other things, um, to be able to make the right decisions around uh, the questions that those analyses can help answer. So when you're running Facebook, how much uh, branded search do you need? Like that's a that's still a really open question that um, MTA is really best set up to solve. Um, like there's other methods that you could probably get at, um, but at the end of the day, there's there's going to be a significant overlap between navigational advertising and advertising that is trying to bring in new customers. And yeah, MTA definitely has a role in that. And I I, I do think that there's actually like this uh, this other shift in the industry where MTA is probably going to become increasingly important for customers or an MTA like data set for customers to have in their possession to to be able to make these types of decisions going forward. Interesting. So talk a lot a little bit about that. You say there might be some some industries or some some types of businesses where it might become more important. What what do you, what do you see there? So I think that there's um, there's kind of like a a lot of stock on GA3 right now um, as like a core piece of technology. And Google is kind of looking at the writing on the wall. So GA uh, by its nature is a third party cookie space tool um, that basically, um, yeah, they, they kind of put a pixel on your site and they help you track sources of users coming in and ultimately, you know, how those customers flow on site. And Basically, the changes that Apple made on Safari for for changing the way that third-party cookies operate, as well as the changes that Google's proposing to make in the Chrome browser, are similarly going to have that impact, uh, where it'll become further and further restricted. So a lot of the baseline that folks have relied upon for, for a very long time for making these decisions, kind of GA has been around um, at least as long as I can remember on the internet. It's been like part of you know the core way that you, you have a website you put GA on and it's been somewhat consistent over time. And I do think that GA4 is really going to change the nature and the composition of that data set in a pretty fundamental way that um, it's just different. It's it's doing a lot more of the stuff server side. It's integrating more deeply and it's going to take um, it's going to take more effort for a an advertiser to set up or a different set of tools. And it's probably going to produce a different set of baselines that um that change over time yeah you're you're, you're speaking my language now this is in, in my line of work we're doing so much of this now is the july 1st deadline for ga3 comes where it's going to stop collecting data on july 1st for the free users you know we've been doing a lot of work with clients to get them migrated to ga4 and help them understand all the things that they could do with that, you know, exporting the data to BigQuery where they could, you know, do whatever they want with it and make it more business specific. But then, yeah, you also have, um, I have to be careful not to go down into my, you know, start ranting about, <laughs> about GA4, but, you know, the things that they've also been doing in coordination with that, like, um, you know, the announcement they made recently where they're deprecating all of the, um, 
all of the different multi-touch attribution models other than last click and data-driven attribution. And I can't remember if it's also first click, if they're still keeping first click or maybe not. I think, no, I think it's just last click and I data think attribution. first click is going away as well, yeah. Yeah, so no more linear, no more time decay, no more custom. It's just either last click or data-driven. So they're kind of shifting, and this is just one example of where they're sort of shifting things to be, I hate this term, but like a little bit more black box. It's just like, oh, trust us, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think Google's actually in a, a pretty tough position because for regulation that's out there, that's governing kind of who can, who can help make these decisions and how they operate with that data. Um, they're actually in a position where, um, being able to tie together a longer path to purchase, they're not necessarily doing that just purely based on, on behalf of the advertiser, um, with GA4, they're, they're going to have a hard case to make that like, Hey, we're not using this data anywhere else outside of GA4. I think Google has always with Google analytics kind of use those identifiers going across many different sites. So I, I think that they're in a position where, um, you kind of touched on like the deprecation of first click. And part of the reason why I believe that they're doing that is they don't necessarily have confidence that they're going to be able to accurately identify that first click that might happen in a user's path to purchase and not necessarily have a strong identifier that goes all the way back um back in time to help them you know tie that path together yeah exactly like back to apple and the stuff they're doing with safari you know the user the the client id cookie that identifies a user on the web used to be a two-year expiration right and now safari says nope seven days (laughs) so someone comes to your site today and then they come back eight days later they're a brand new user you've never seen them before (laughs) right so exactly and and that's a huge portion of the problem that we've helped a lot of our customers solve um either with an a record or or c name and and basically the way that we represent um rockerbox is really as that data processor on behalf of the advertiser so all of the data that um, that gets collected on a customer's website is basically that customer's data. It's never kind of being shared outside of the scope of that customer. And that puts us in a bucket where that information can be tied together on a, on a longer time horizon. So we're subject to the first party cookie expiration policies that Safari puts in place um, and and kind of elongates that. And I think Google is kind of suffering in this like gray, gray middle area where it's like, okay, we're not necessarily, we know that we're not um, a first party collector of data because we're Google. Um, so we're in this third party bucket and that's kind of forced their move to be much more server side, much more um, identifier centric um, or, or customer identifier centric in GA4, but it creates a lot of these challenges and issues that you're bringing up. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of one question that I've been asking myself frequently, at least once a week over the past many, many months as I kind of think through all of these issues that we've just been talking about with, with multi-touch attribution is like, do you think there will, will, will ever reach a point or maybe we've already reached a point or it will ever reach a point in the future where multi-touch attribution provides no value or, or actively misleads us? Uh, no, I, I think that like, it, it really depends on what the definition of multi-touch attribution is. Um, so I think like as, as Rockerbox has kind of defined it, it's being able to rely on some bottoms up user level analysis to inform your marketing. Um, and that's, I, I think like NTA has taken on a lot of different meetings, but there's no, no other way of like, and, and, and we've been discussing like, is MTA the right title for analyzing a user's path to purchase and helping a marketer make decisions off of it? Um, 
But I think like it is still the thing that resonates most directly is like, yeah, there's multiple touches, there's multiple advertisements. So I think like as a concept, MTA will be around and as a term, MTA will be around. But the nature of that data set, what goes into it, um, moving to be more probabilistic, to be more much more first party is going to be the key for making MTA um, something that a customer can still rely on. So I think, yeah, it really just comes down to the role that it plays um, and making sure that a customer is making the right decisions off of kind of a bottoms up data set. Right. And, and, and having some sort of trust in the data, right? The, yeah. the fact like it's, it is bottoms up and, and are, can we rely on that data? Are we sure that we were able to tie all the touch points back to a single user? Um, yeah. Which I feel like that's, that's the big question is, you know, and we, we had this question even before GDPR and Apple yes. started taking this. It's like, you know, there was, you know, there were, there were the studies out there that showed like people use on average X number of devices per day. It's like their phone, yeah. their laptop, their computer, like, you know, even before GDPR, there was always this issue of like, oh, you you browse from your computer and then you go to your phone and you make the purchase and like that yeah. breaks the chain, right? So exactly. And I think that that's been, um, that's been the challenge of, um, the way that some companies are kind of like the the idea of MTA um, emerged is, hey, we're going to have this like perfect data set that's <laughs> a source of truth that, you know, has every touch point and measures everything well. Um, and the reality of it is, no, like that's not that's not the way that um, that data in general works. Um, there's always nuance in data. There's always cleanliness of data. There's always gaps in data. Um, and as a marketer, you need to understand what those gaps are if you're if you're dealing with user level data, um, but MTA is still going to have the opportunity to to be the best form of click tracking uh, in the future. So as we kind of look at you know what what the changes are kind of across the part with third party analytics, um, having having a first party data set that's able to capture that and then ultimately build and and roll up into something is going to be a strong baseline that that customers are going to continue to need going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And there's still, as far as I understand, there's still no, uh, no method or tool that's better for providing marketers that sort of very granular day-to-day level information to make decisions in the platforms to kill off this campaign, add more budget to that campaign, change these keywords, right? Like you can't get that out of marketing mix modeling or incrementality testing at certain granular levels. So. Exactly. It, it really comes down to granularity and end user for marketing. So there's lots of folks that need marketing measurement and um, they don't necessarily all have the same decision that you're making, that they're, that they're making. So um, yeah, like the, the big one that you just hit on is that optimization, like in-channel optimization. Um, you need signal to do in-channel optimization. And if third-party platforms don't necessarily have a consistent signal, or you're not sure about that, you need to have some baseline that you can turn to that that helps you inform the decisions that you're making. And MTA has been the primary mechanism that our customers turn to. So it, it's like, hey, you know, GA data showed this uh, falling off the cliff or um, kind of the change in Facebook about around a year ago um, where the restriction of buckets that were available for measurement on as part of ATT caused Facebook performance to fall off. Well, the MTA data stayed constant. Um, during that time. So customers were able to have a consistent baseline that they were able to use during this time where, you know, all the other data was kind of showing a negative trend or a downward trend and MTA data was 
continuing to show, hey, the clicks are still coming through. Um, you know, even though cookie policy changed for third-party cookies for GA and for Facebook and their ability to measure being in this first-party cookie space gave you something consistent where you could say, oh, that campaign is still performing, even though we're seeing actually it start to, to peter off in, in other areas. So uh, it's been a really valuable tool for, for customers um, to be able to make those more granular optimizations. Absolutely. Hey, it's Jim here with Quick Aside. If you're listening to this episode and enjoying it, I've got to tell you about the Mix It Up newsletter from MMM Hub. It's a free newsletter that provides resources on how to effectively measure your marketing. It includes helpful tutorials, cutting edge tools, and relevant articles so readers can make smarter decisions with their marketing dollars. You can sign up today at mmmhub.org. Now back to the show. Kind of moving away from MTA, right? I, I, I kind of I think about this as like a, a a pendulum swinging, right? Like you think pre-digital, right? Pre-internet, like this term that's I, I've been seeing a lot lately on on LinkedIn and elsewhere, like the the dark funnel, right? So like pre-digital, everything was a dark funnel. Like you didn't know who saw your ad, if it caused them to go into your store and buy whatever, right? So everything was a dark funnel, and then you know internet explodes, digital marketing starts taking the stage. And the pendulum swings over into like, oh, we can track everything about everyone, right? Sort of uh, that that fallacy, yeah. but like that, you know, we can track people, yeah. and now we have multi-touch attribution, and and we can kind of do that very granular tracking. And now with you know GDPR and and Apple and the changes that they've introduced, like I feel like the pendulum is sort of swinging back towards the like, oh no, it's going back to the dark funnel. We can't see everything like we used to. And you know, with that, you know, you start to see the rise uh, or, or the resurgence of of popularity of methods like marketing mixed modeling that's been around for decades. Um, other other opportunities for understanding market marketing performance like incrementality testing, and and really kind of using those all together. Um, I, I think I already know your answer to this, but uh, the one question I was going to ask you is: Do you see marketing mixed modeling taking the place of of MTA or supplementing it? Yeah, I think that they're they're really complementary. So I think that they actually, and I, I think that we discussed this a little bit, but they're really um, they're answering different questions. Um, so when we look at marketing mix modeling, you're you're trying to answer a higher level question around, hey, is this channel or is this channel strategy working for us? And MTA is going much more granular. Um, it's going at that that smaller problem of, hey, how do I optimize campaigns within a channel? How do I make sure that I'm making the right day-to-day decisions? So um, I think that MMM um, definitely does have a resurgence right now. Um, and I think part of it is that um, MMM as a term, um, to your point, has been around for decades, but I think that it's actually um, a lot more nuanced. So uh, as, as we really started to unpack, okay, like MMM, really what what you're describing with MMM is it's like a statistical set of methods that have some assumptions in it tailored really well to the marketing domain. So it's like, okay, what do marketers believe about marketing? And MMM is just saying like, hey, let's take everything that marketers believe about marketing and make sure that we have some level of control in the statistical model that we build. So unlike something like a linear regression where it's just like, hey, you know, we're just looking for correlation between you know, spend and revenue. Um, MMM is really saying like, hey, we have all of these other things that we believe about marketing and let's make sure that that's in the model. Exactly. Yeah. We have we have ad stock to try to mimic the real world behavior of, of you know, decay rate. Like someone sees a commercial today and maybe they remember it the next day or the next week and it kind of has this 
you know, this sort of decay over time. And so, yeah, we're just really trying to use a bunch of fancy math to create a model that mimics the real world. Exactly. And I think like that's been kind of what's behind a, a bit behind the the resurgence of MMM is one, we're able to kind of like fit different things now. Um, so before MMM was, it, it, it had all of those assumptions in it. So it had ad stock, it had um, saturation, it had decay, like it, it had these different concepts in it, but it was heavily assumption driven. So you would come and say like, okay, what is my assumption about the way that TV interacts? And, you know, ad stock wasn't necessarily something that you could learn um, as, as part of the model. So you would build the model, um, you would have your inputs, you would have your outputs. And what you would really be looking for is like a, a very specific coefficient that says like, okay, how does given, given the model that I've set up, how does, uh, this respond and how should I tune this one coefficient, which is like, um, its relationship with spend, but the other stuff kind of stayed constant. And I think like over, over the past, you know, 10 years, machine learning tool set and, and all the other things that go into it has made the ability to tune all of these other parameters, something that's possible in the model. Yeah. So when we think about ad stock or saturation or other things that might go into the model, these are all now tunable parameters. And it actually, on one hand, makes the models like significantly more accurate at being able to kind of describe the past and predict the future. Um, but it's not necessarily simple. Um, so I think like there was a world where it was simpler back in the day where, yeah, you, you knew all of the assumptions of how a billboard would function or how TV would function or how um, Facebook would function. But I think today it's actually, you need a, there's a lot more nuance that goes into understanding how those how those channels actually represent themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about MMM for Shopify, which was uh, something that Rockerbox uh, rolled out. Let's see if my notes are right. Was that in April of this year? Yeah. So yeah, MMM for Shopify is kind of us um, looking at the market and saying, where can we have the biggest impact um, with introducing MMM and do it in a way that is enabling us to make the assumptions necessary to give a good result. Um, so I think like traditionally MMM has been a really consultative sell. Uh, so it's been uh, a process where you work with the customer, you have to understand all of the components of really how their, how their product or how, how they anticipate consumer behavior leading to purchase. Um, and then you take all of those assumptions and you try to collect all of the information necessary to build, build a model that, that describes, uh, describes that output with Shopify, we're able to simplify a lot. So we're able to go through a process of saying like, okay, we know that the conversion event is going to happen online. So unlike, you know, CPG that might be happening where, um, kind of ad stock might take a long time to work. For e-commerce, we know, okay, what are the general bounds for ad stock? We're not going to have a 50-day uh, ad stock parameter for Facebook campaigns for e-commerce. For CPG, it might be a completely different story. And that's something yeah. that we'll we'll dig into and, and look at in the future. But or even by like limiting it to shop up. Yeah, or even like B2B SaaS, right? It could be, I have a client that it's, you know, it's an 18-month sales cycle. <laughs> so it's like- Exactly. That's, that's a little tricky. <laughs> exactly. So if your MMM assumption is two years of data, 18 months, you're kind of like bumping up against what's the maximum, 
what's the maximum that we could really have for ad stock to, to influence conversion at that point? Yeah, exactly. I remember when, when I first saw the announcement, uh, back in April, um, my first like kind of initial reaction was like, ah, oh, that's too bad. It's just for Shopify. Um, but as I thought about it more, I'm thinking like, that's actually kind of brilliant, right? You, you've narrowed your focus in a way that makes it, you know, easier, right? Because your assumptions, like you mentioned, are sort of um, a lot more um, consistent, right? It's not like you're going, well, this there's this B2B SaaS client, and here's this e-commerce D2C uh, customer, and here's this other, you know, whatever. Um, so it's like very, you know, in terms of kind of building out the product, you're, you're very focused. It's a lot easier. You're dealing primarily, I'm assuming, with D2C e-commerce um, customers where I'm assuming, again, I'm going to make a ton of assumptions here. <laughs> Correct me if any of them are wrong, but a lot of them are probably just primarily doing digital marketing, right? They're not doing linear TV, out of home, direct mail, that kind of stuff. So like you have all of the data easily accessible. Yeah, I'm sure you've built in strong uh, pipelines and, and data warehouses where you can kind of collect all of that very, very frequently daily or, or you know, something like that, where it's all, you know, you have the, the, transformations that need to happen to them and it kind of all feeds into the system. It's like all very consistent. And because you focused so narrowly on that, that one, um, segment, right. Which is probably still a pretty big segment. <laughs> it's yeah. you, you've just kind of like nailed it, right. You're able to, you're able to provide a, a product that's very, very effective, very useful for that segment of customers. And then maybe now you maybe even now you expand out from there, but yeah, I, th I thought it was just really, really smart. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with our approach here is we realized that MMM kind of has that consultative effort that goes into it to really need to understand all the nuances of how we anticipate the marketing channel functioning, how we anticipate the conversion event happening, how to deal with you know sales or other promotions. And Shopify enabled us to simplify a lot of those things, um, at least initially. So we we're able to zero in and say, okay, how much of these other effects like sales or holiday periods or other things can we get directly from, you know, one source of data? And it turns out like most of the effects that we would want to put in on that are that are non-marketing effects, we could get either from macroeconomic or from the Shopify data set. And then same thing on the marketing side, we can go through and, and make a lot of assumptions around the things that we were talking about, like ad stock or saturation or other things that that fit into those buckets that are pretty consistent and by simplifying the problem that way, it's allowed us to kind of look at this and say, okay, we can deliver uh, this type of MMM offering to a much larger uh, cross-section of customers because we've limited the scope and we can provide a lot more value to a lot more people, um, at least initially. And then we can go through and start to build out, okay, like how would we want to handle promotional periods or how would we want to... Um, handle a more complex conversion funnel in the future and be able to, to focus in on that problem or how do we want to handle uh, linear TV and in a more robust way and, and focus in on that problem. Uh, but kind of separating those things out so that we're not dealing with all of those things simultaneously, which is what most folks that are performing MMM analysis today um, are ultimately tasked with and, and, and are, are struggling with as part of something that um, isn't necessarily scalable. Exactly. Yeah, do you see a lot of uh, adoption of uh, of MMM Shopify? Do you have uh, clients using it actively and and getting some good feedback from that? Yeah, so we have, I think, of of the Shopify customers, 
over 60% have uh, opted in to MMM for Shopify or have expressed uh, significant interest in it. And we've been kind of taking it slow with moving people from kind of kind of getting to the point where we match their expectations. So there is still um, an element of tuning, but we feel pretty confident on, in the ability to kind of get the full system with the refresh cadence and all the other things that we want in place. Um, and then the other thing that we've been thinking about for these customers is ultimately how do we take this and make this data actionable? So I think that that's the other component of MMM that has been kind of difficult to, to triangulate is like, okay, folks want MMM, it's giving them, you know, this ROI number, or this output that says like, hey, this is how the marketing channel is performing. But on a day to day or month to month basis, how does a customer actually use it? And uh, that's been something that we've been heavily leaning into is how do we take and, and use this as a, a budgeting tool or a cross channel um, allocation tool to help inform how an organization might run the rest of their marketing. Because ultimately they came to Rockerbox for, for something that's much more optimization focused and kind of uh, granular in nature. And how do you take top down and lay it on top of granular? So that's been a big component of, of what we've been focused on. Yeah, you, you hit on a few points there that kind of lead into the next uh, kind of topic or set of questions, which is around, you know, how how do you think about building sort of a single platform that has all of this complexity to it, right? Like, you know, everyone's used to the Google Analytics where they go and they get their their attribution numbers and Google just kind of tells them. But now we're, you know, you know, everyone's saying, well, multi-touch attribution isn't the only thing you should be using. You should also look at marketing mix modeling and maybe some incrementality testing. And you're starting to kind of build this all together um, into into a single platform. So talk a little bit about the, the challenges with um, adding all of that complexity into your tool and, and how do you how do you make it simple for for marketers to use? Yeah, so I think the big thing that we've focused in on here is that um, this is not like a an easy thing for an advertiser to necessarily know what they need. So I think like some customers come to us and they're looking for MTA and they're trying to use MTA for high level budget allocation, or they come to us for MMM and they're looking for in channel optimization. And I think what we're trying to do at a, at a more macro level is provide the right analysis for the right decision that the customer is trying to make and then use the decisions that they're making to link those things together. So that's been kind of our guiding principle is like, what do we need to answer this specific question in the best way possible? And then how do we use the answer to that question to inform other decisions that they're making? Um, so that's kind of been, been the basis of how do we remove complexity is how do we make sure that the product is oriented towards answering specific questions for advertisers rather than saying like, Hey, you could use MTA for, you know, budget, op uh, budget allocation, but you could also use MMM or you could use incrementality. Like, I think that that's a really, um, dangerous approach because it just leads to a lot of confusion for customers. Um, even though. There, there is a, a reality where like customers are doing lots of different things to, to make those decisions. But really what we're trying to do is carve out how, how do you want to focus MMM? Um, and for us, it's been on forecasting and budget allocation uh, across channel. And then how do we want to position MTA? And it's really on that opt optimization and overlap and making sure that we separate out the two worlds um, so that as you make one set of decisions, it leads into the next. 
um, as, as a way to simplify that, that complexity that's arisen. Yeah. That, that, I, I applaud you because I know it's marketers are fickle and we like to have that silver tool, the silver bullet tool that just tells us what to do and trying to, trying to build a tool that satisfies that, that need and, and does so in an elegant way is, is I'm sure a, a very big challenge. It's one that keeps you up at night or keeps you busy during the day at least. For sure. So, so I want to, want to round things up here, wrap things up and, um, you know, I like to end the podcast with an action item. So one thing that marketers and analysts listening can do immediately after they go and leave a rating and review for the podcast, um, what's one thing that they could do uh, right now to think about improving their marketing or improving improving their craft? So I think one of the things that we've noticed with a lot of advertisers, and this probably resonates with a lot of the folks that you work with as well, is... Um, kind of removing uh, the, the time it takes to assemble reporting. Uh, that's been a big component of one of the challenges that we solve for a lot of people. Um, and I think like one of the things that Rockerbox offers is that we actually have a free offering for just doing data consolidation for folks um, where they can go through, click in and kind of consolidate data across the standard API integrations, rockerbox.com slash free. Um, you can kind of sign up and basically do that data consolidation. But I think that Having data consolidated opens up a lot of opportunity for making decisions in a data-driven way. If you're kind of logging into different platforms or different places to, to you know, try to make decisions around things and, and doing that, or you need to send reporting to CFO on a, on a monthly cadence, or you need to prepare uh, and share it with the broader organization, and you haven't um, kind of put automation at the forefront of that, um, it's just uh, a huge a huge time suck. So um that's kind of like our our plug, um, yeah. not necessarily the full Rockerbox uh, platform, but I, I view that as just something where we can provide a lot of value and, and help kind of any marketer um, on the consolidation side. I love that. Um, and I didn't know that existed. So thanks for, for letting me and, and the listeners know. Um, it's surprising to me that still how many companies struggle to just do that first step of consolidating their data, getting it all together. Um, you know, we deal with this every day with clients and helping them build up data pipelines and get a marketing data warehouse built. So yeah, that's, you got to get that first step in place first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, that, that's not to say that there's not a ton of other work that goes into to the rest of the pipeline, but just being able to log into one place and kind of quickly see some of that information has been, been a big component of, uh, you know, it's that, it's that first step in uh, first toe in the water, first, uh, first step on the trail that uh, kind of gets someone started thinking more, more data-driven. So uh, it's a, a huge component of what, what we've been thinking about uh, at Rockerbox. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Rick, for coming on. I do want to mention, before I ask you where people can, can get a hold of you, I know you that uh, or I know that Rockerbox has uh, Rockerbox Summer Camp coming up, which is a, a virtual conference. Is conference the right word? Webinar, uh, conference. Yeah. conference, conference, I think is the right word. Uh, so, we're, we're still new to terminology on this too, but yeah. Yeah. So June 21st and 22nd, uh, for B2C mark performance marketers, uh, you can go to rockerbox.com slash summer dash camp dash 2023. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, what's, uh, what's the 30 second, uh, pitch for, for what people can get from there. Summer camp is kind of our. Uh, it, it's actually 
somewhat similar to uh, just kind of like helping marketers share information. So we're going to be featuring a lot of the brands that we work with, with use cases of how they're leveraging Rockerbox um, to help improve different areas of their marketing um, and kind of highlighting the different use cases that um, Rockerbox is helping uh, and giving that access giving that access to our current customers. So we're going to have a whole track for current customers, but also prospective customers that are potentially just dipping their toe in the water. So um, it's really just, you know, kind of getting a whole bunch of people together, uh, kind of like a summer camp. You know, you meet a whole bunch of different people. We start to build that community across um, our customers, our prospects, so that you understand and kind of are able to share more of that information. So uh, yeah, this is our first time doing it, but we're, we're really excited about it. Awesome. Will there be s'mores? That is a great question, and <laughs> we probably should. Um, so I'll I'll bring that back to marketing. Um, but we we actually have uh, an advertiser that we work with that I believe sells s'mores kits. So um, oh, perfect! That could be a that could be an awesome uh, cross promotional opportunity for us. Yes, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Rick. Where can uh, people who want to find out more information or get in touch with you? Uh, where can they find you? So I have a uh, LinkedIn. I'm not super active on Twitter, um, but uh, that's probably those are probably uh, the the two places where um, there's there's limited exposure to to Rick on uh, on social media. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Rick. And uh, Jim, glad you could be on the show. Yes. Uh, super appreciative of you having me on, and I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic. We'll talk to you later. Well, my friend, you've made it to the end of the show, which means you either found it so riveting you couldn't turn it off, or you're out for a jog and can't easily hit the skip button on your phone. Either way, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would find it helpful. And please, as a personal favor to me, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this and leave a rating and review. That helps others find us, but more importantly, shows that you're a thought leader who cares about your craft and wants others to join this tribe. 